Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 4, 1 through 42. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water, springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am He. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or 
Why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come, could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for and others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world. A few years ago, we had a new couple come to our connection group and she was definitely eager to jump in to find community and uh, he was a little hesitant to say the least. And so as she's kind of, you know, milling around, getting to know people, he's there, he's friendly, he's, uh, he'd engage, you know, when you'd ask a question, but uh, other than that, he kind of stayed silent. And especially when we like split up, you know, men and women, it seemed as though that was particularly awkward for him, but still, he was fine, but still a little hesitant. You could tell that he was uncomfortable. And as we stood in my kitchen, as Connection Group wrapped up, he could really kind of only say something like, I don't think I'm good enough for this yet. I've done a lot of stuff. As if to say, surely I'm not the kind of person that Jesus wants. And at the time, unbeknownst to all of us, including his, his girlfriend, he was a prominent figure in a fairly sizable drug trafficking ring here in Northern Iowa where he was uh, distributing drugs all throughout the region. And so on this particular Tuesday night, we had a prominent drug dealer here with a church group, a bunch of uh, squeaky clean Christians, you could say. And as he was looking around, the thing that kept ringing in his mind was you don't belong here. If only they knew who you really are. Surely you're not the kind of person that Jesus wants. But this morning in our passage, Jesus answers that question. He answers the question for us, 
What kind of people does Jesus want? So Christine already read it for us, but if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 4. And what we see as we begin John 4 is that Jesus is on his way back to Galilee. And Galilee, if, if you remember, is the place where that whole like turning water into wine thing happened. And so he's on his way back there. And there's other ways to get to Galilee, but the fastest way is through a region called Samaria. And little do, you know, for us, we're like, okay, fine. He went through Samaria. But for the Jews, I mean, remember Jesus was a Jew and he was considered like a Jewish leader, a Jewish rabbi. To the Jews, uh, they hated Samaria. And more particularly, they hated Samaritans because, and we see this back in 2 Kings chapter 17, that around 729 BC, God allowed the Assyrian kingdom to come in and take Israel into exile. Israel had continued to refuse to repent before the Lord. God had sent prophets, prophet after prophet, calling them to repentance. They refused to repent, so God sent in the Assyrians to take them over, and they hauled them off. And what the king of Assyria did in 729 BC is he took people from all the surrounding nations, all of the enemy, you know, nations and all that stuff, and brought them to settle in the land of Samaria. And so when these foreign nations came, they, there were a few kind of like remaining Israelites, uh, Israelite women particularly, and the men from these surrounding nations married these women, had children, and they also brought with them their foreign God. So in the mind of the Jews, the Samaritans were the ultimate kind of half-breed. They were illegitimate children of enemy nations and of foreign gods. And so in in the eyes of the Jews, Samaritans were perpetually unclean. The Jews had all of these things that you could do to cleanse yourself of sin, of, of guilt before the Lord, but a Samaritan, no. There's no amount of cleaning, no amount of sacrifice that could make you clean. They were broken. They were dirty. They were untouchable. They were barely human. But here's Jesus. With alternate options, he could have got to Galilee several other ways, but here's Jesus, totally undeterred by the social and religious stigma of Samaria. And he's sitting at a Samaritan well around noon when we see in verse seven, Jesus is sitting here around noon and it says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water, which to us doesn't seem like much. It's like, okay, it's around lunchtime. She's coming to get water. No big deal. But remember at this time, like it was customary for women to go to the well in the cooler times of the day, the morning or in the evening. And generally they wouldn't come alone. They would come in groups, both for safety and for community to kind of enjoy each other's presence as they're doing this kind of daily chore. They would walk to the well together. So the fact that the woman is coming to the well alone at noon gives us an indicator that she's somewhat of a social outcast. There's something about this woman that has set her apart that even within Samaria has made her the other. And not only this, Jesus has also put himself in a fairly provocative scenario because in the mind of the Jews, as they're, as they're like hearing about this interaction, like they have in their mind that Jacob met his wife at a well. 
that Isaac met his wife at a well, that Moses met his wife at a well. So for the Jews, there was definitely something about, be very careful about what you do at wells, especially if you're a man hanging around a well and a woman comes up, and especially if you're hanging around a Samaritan well. But again, Jesus doesn't care. Jesus will go anywhere and he'll talk to anyone. And we see that Jesus initiates this conversation. He's the one to step forward and begin the conversation. Look at verse nine. He says, or verse eight, I guess, verse seven and eight. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And she, it totally throws her off. And here's what she says. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. What Jesus was doing here was totally scandalous. It was totally unthinkable. It was totally surprising. And we, we don't really have like a parallel situation in our day that we can kind of equate this with, at least without, uh, without being offensive. But maybe the closest would be the sinful dehumanization of black people during the Jim Crow era. Separate drinking fountains, separate seating, a total disdain and disregard for the humanity of another. But what we see in Jesus is that there isn't a hint of racism. There isn't a hint of racism. Whether you are a high-ranking Jewish leader like Nicodemus that we saw a few weeks ago, or you are a half-breed social outcast Samaritan, Jesus is neither impressed nor deterred by race, gender, culture, and social status. Jesus will go anywhere, and he will talk to anyone. But little does she know that this request that he makes of her pales in comparison to the gift that he wants to give to her. So he asks her for a drink of water, but that pales in comparison to the gift that he wants to give to her. Look at verse 10. Here's what he says. She goes, how is it that you're asking me for this? Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. If you knew, woman, if only you knew who it is that you're talking to, you would be asking me, not just for a drink, you would be asking me for rivers, for a stream of living water. Living water, that's kind of an interesting phrase. We don't really use that a whole lot. Living water was like the ancient equivalent of saying running water, fresh water, like Living water, like dead water was stagnant water. It's not moving, it's dead, it's stagnant, it's gross. Living water was fresh water, it was moving. Like in that time to have living water meant that the water remained fresh because it continued to flow from somewhere else. Living water. Living water found its source outside of itself so that it would remain fresh and alive. But here, 
she still doesn't get it. She still thinks like we're at a well, we're just talking about water, right? Like I'm getting water, you want water, this is just about water, okay? She doesn't get it. So Jesus drops a few more breadcrumbs along the way to show her what he's talking about. Look at verse 13. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. You can almost imagine this scene that as they're standing at the well, Jesus is pointing to the well, like, like this water is good, like this is fine. I'm glad that you have this, but don't forget that anyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. And we know that he's not just talking about water because right at the end of verse 14, he connects it with eternal life right? He's, he's saying, lady, I'm not talking about water. I'm talking about life. Like this conversation is about your life, but she still doesn't get it. She still thinks he's talking about water. She's like, it, she, it, it's as though she's nearsighted. Like she can't see past her physical senses, right? It's as though her soul has become numb to where she can't see the spiritual reality that Jesus is trying to talk to her about. And so Jesus lovingly, but very specifically, takes a scalpel and touches a nerve. Look at verse 16. He says, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Like, this seems totally out of the blue, right? Like, we're, we're talking about water, and now Jesus brings up the fact that she's had five marriages, like, why in the world? Like, that doesn't seem to have anything to do with water. But don't you see, it has everything to do with the thirst of her soul. Everything to do with the thirst of her soul. Because while she thought he was talking about her physical thirst, he was actually talking about her spiritual thirst. Because remember, he wasn't talking about water. He was talking about life. And because he was talking about life, he stepped into the mess of her life. See, she had a deep soul-level thirst to be known, to be loved, to be accepted. And she ran to the well of husband one, but that well dried up. So then she ran to the well of husband two, and that well dried up. And then to the well of husband three, dried up. Husband four, dried up. Husband five, dried up. To where she got to the point that she just kind of abandoned the whole marriage paradigm altogether and was just living with guy number six, continuing to try to quench the deep thirst of her soul. She was trying to fill the deep thirst of her soul at the wells of her earthly relationships. She's been drinking from stagnant swamps instead of running streams. And here's the thing. When the water isn't alive, when the water isn't alive, it will inevitably get stagnant. It'll get gross. And it will eventually dry out. Sometimes when I'm doing premarital counseling with a young couple, this isn't all the time, but uh, there have been times where I've got a young couple sitting across from me and I'll say to them, 
that getting married means that one day one of you will look at the other one in a casket. And you go, what kind of premarital counseling is that? Like, why would you say that to like these like young 20-somethings in love? Why would you tell them that one day one of them will see each other in the casket? And it can't be because you killed the other, right? Like, but either way, you'll see the other person, one of you in a casket. Why in the world do I say that? It's to remind them that they can't be each other's well. That they can't be each other's source of life. Because even a good marriage, even if your marriage is great, even the best of marriages will one day be dried up by death. And if at that point, if you're standing there and your God lays dead in a casket, who will be there to comfort your soul? Who will be there to fill your emptiness? You see, satisfaction on this earth, no matter what it is, marriage, relationships, money, job, whatever you can think of, the satisfaction that we get from the things on this earth are at best fleeting, at best. They don't last. Maybe you remember when Snickers had their advertising campaign that Snickers satisfies. It's a good thing for them that it actually doesn't. Because then I would only have to buy one. Right? Like they should, they should tweak that to go like Snickers sort of satisfies. Sort of. For a little bit. You eat enough Snickers, you'll get full, but you will get hungry again, will you not? That's the whole business model. Like grocery stores don't exist because we stay full. It's because we'll get hungry again. Is it any wonder that your desire to be liked, that your desire for attention isn't actually satisfied no matter how many likes you get on social media? Because if it did, you would only post one thing. But you don't. Why is it that no matter how much attention you get, no matter how much money you get, no matter how many relationships you're in, why is it that in order to keep the satisfaction of those things, that you have to get more of it and go further in it to be as satisfied as you were at the beginning? Why is it that for you to still feel the love and the commitment of that relationship that you have to continually give more and more of your mind, of your heart, and of your body in order to still feel just as loved and accepted and wanted as you did at the beginning? Why is that? It's because when you try to quench the spiritual thirst of your soul by drawing from earthly wells each dip of the bucket means that the water gets a little shallower. And so in order for you to get as much as you did at the beginning, you have to draw a little bit deeper. You have to let the bucket down a little bit further. Whether it's your job or your relationship, whatever it is, are you trying to satisfy 
the deep thirst of your soul at the wells of the world? Do you wonder why, no matter how many times you go back, it still isn't ever enough? See, Jesus wanted her to see that her relationship issues were only a symptom of a deep spiritual thirst that she'd been trying to satisfy for her whole life. And notice that when Jesus touches that nerve, she pretty quickly changes the subject. Look at verse 19. She says, sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place, of wor- the, the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So she moves on to like a theology question. Like, like a, an ecclesiology question, like where is the proper place of worship? I think that's kind of interesting. It seems that when Jesus hits a nerve, isn't it easy to try to change the subject? Like maybe you've experienced this in your connection group, right? Like a pointed question gets asked and you give just a vague enough answer to like satisfy the room. And then you just kind of wait for, you know, for us to move on, right? Like I'll just give enough but then let's move on. Or you kind of like, you kind of like throw out some like, like big, high, you know, overarching theology question. It can be easy to use theological conversation to hide from personal transformation because it looks really spiritual. I just really want to get into the deep things. It's used to hide yourself from being transformed by the clear things. She brings up the issue of the location of worship, but Jesus isn't gonna be deterred by this kind of distracting question. He's gonna keep pressing on the heart of the matter and he answers her question by saying that worship isn't a matter of where your feet are, it's a matter of where your heart is. Look at verse 23. He says, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. What does that mean? That means that true worship isn't mainly about a place. It's about a posture. A true worship isn't mainly about the place that your body is. It's about the posture that your heart is in. That when the Holy Spirit of God, when we receive Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit changes our heart, transforms our spirit. And because of that, we can worship God in our innermost being. That worship isn't first like an external place, an external thing. That worship begins in your innermost being as it is aligned by the truth of who God is and how he has revealed himself in the scriptures. We worship God in spirit and in truth, in our innermost being of our heart and in accordance to his truth as revealed in scripture, which means that it's entirely possible to come to church and not come to worship. Like you might've woke up this morning going like, well, we're gonna go, we're gonna go to worship. And that might be true, but it's not a matter of where you go. It's not a matter of the place that your body is. It's a matter of the posture of your heart. You can sing songs all day and not be worshiping. You can read scripture all day and not be worshiping. You can give as much money. You can pray with as many people. You can sit here and enjoy the message and not be worshiping because it doesn't matter firstly where your body is. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It's about the posture of your heart. But she's still not so sure, right? She says, 
in verse, you know, 25, 26, well, when the Messiah comes, like he's gonna, he's gonna tell us these things. Like, we'll see what he says. And then Jesus drops this massive truth bomb in verse 26, when he basically says, I, the one am, who am speaking to you, am he. Like you're waiting for the Messiah, newsflash right here. And with one statement, I am he. With one statement, the dam of her heart begins to break. And the waters of God's grace begin to flow over her parched soul. And you see what she does next. She has met the Messiah and you heard it read, she then turned around and ran into town saying, come, like to every, like come with me. And this is a big deal. Cause remember she came at noon. She came by herself. She came in the heat of the day to avoid any sort of social interaction. Like she just wanted to kind of be like isolated and alone. But when she met Jesus, her heart, that had been iced over by guilt and shame was now melted in the noonday sun of the light of the glory of Christ. And so the very people that she sought to avoid because of her guilt and shame, she ran back to invite. Come see the one who told me everything about myself. You guys know, but come see the one. Could this be the Messiah? Come see the Messiah that I have met. You see, it was when the grace of Jesus flowed to her. It was then that the grace of Jesus flowed through her. That this empty woman who came to the well with a physical thirst, not knowing her deep spiritual thirst, when Jesus Christ filled her up, she couldn't help but overflow to others. That is the natural response. And a whole bunch of Samaritans, a whole bunch of outcasts, a whole bunch of nobodies, heard her testimony, came out, saw for themselves, and came to the same exact conclusion that she did, that surely this is the savior of the world. You ask the question, what kind of people is Jesus for? Jesus isn't for the clean, but he's for the messy. Jesus isn't for the put together. Jesus is for the used up. You see, Jesus isn't for the full. Jesus is for the empty. You might have come into this place this morning going like, I don't know about this Jesus. I don't know if I'm good enough for Jesus. That isn't the point. Jesus isn't for a good. Jesus is not for good people. Jesus is for lost people. He did not come to make you good. He came to make you alive. And that guy that stood in my kitchen, unsure if God's grace could ever reach to him, he eventually came and saw for himself received Jesus Christ as his savior. And as I sat across from him at a table at the Lynn County Correctional Facility, he said to me, he said, Jake, you know what? You know what's interesting? When I was out there, I was in bondage. When I was apart from Christ, I was in chains. Now that I've met Jesus, though I am in prison, I am as free as I, as I have ever been in my life. Jesus takes the empty 
and makes them full. Jesus takes the messy and makes them clean. Jesus takes the used up and makes you filled up. Are you tired of drawing from wells that continually run dry? Come and see for yourself. Come and see this one. Come see Jesus. Come and receive him today. He's the only one that can heal the broken. He's the only one that can fill the empty. You see, the issue isn't isn't that you're so bad that you can't come to Jesus. No, there is no one so bad that Jesus doesn't want you. And there is no one so good that you don't need him. Receive Jesus Christ today. And for those of us who have received Jesus Christ, Make no mistake, we have been filled to overflow. We who were dead in our sins, we who were empty and thirsty in our soul have been filled up. The, the grace of God has come to us so that his grace would go through us. And it is our privilege now to take this message and run to those in our city and across the nation. Say, come, come see the one who has filled up my empty soul. This is our mission, church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ came for the broken, that Christ came for the dirty, that Christ came for the messed up. Oh, Jesus, we praise you that there is no one too far gone for your grace, for your mercy, that you run to our counterfeit wells and meet us there. And God, we praise you this morning. I pray for anyone who has yet to drink from the waters of life from Jesus Christ, to receive him as their savior. Lord, would you by your spirit move in their heart in such a way that they would receive Jesus this morning and be filled up by his grace, by the power of your spirit. I pray this in his name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.